you'll hear this story and you'll also be gaining knowledge when you listen to it on how to do these things. I realized that like my concern was really just what people were going to think of my decision and oh my god she's crazy what is she doing she's not you know she's supposed to be pursuing a career this is when she's supposed to be finding a job and I that doesn't appeal to me that never appealed to me. Play a major role in spreading the love and the joy and uh, reducing our imprint you know for for future generations and for all that we share this planet with. I was just embarrassed. I felt like I couldn't do it, like I'd already failed. I had no idea what I was doing. What did I get myself into? What was I thinking? Our history of humanity really revolves around great people. And that's, that's all we know about. And why is that? It's because the insignificant people weren't important enough that somebody would take the time to document their life. Hello everyone, my name is Kaylin Otto and you are listening to The Unruly Podcast. First of all, I hope that no matter where you are in the world today, you are safe and warm and cozy and feeling well and that you had an easy, restful holiday season. Today we're going to keep this intro short and sweet because I'm sure that you've had a lot of static and noise around you with all these ads and commercials coming out, trying to get you to buy things for the holiday season, telling you that you must buy this thing in 2023 to be the best version of you. And there's so much that's that's going on in our minds. So I just want to jump to the sweet, juicy, nourishing part of the show, which is my interview with our guests. Today I'll be interviewing the wonderful, beautiful, badass, intelligent Alexandra Paul and just wanted to give you a trigger warning that we will be talking about disordered eating, mainly at the beginning of the show. Um, We'll also be talking about a lot of other topics, but wanted to put that out there for you. Lastly, I have a small request for you, dear listeners, that means a lot to me. Can you pause this podcast episode, pop over to whatever platform you're listening to it on, and leave a review for the show? What have you liked about these episodes? What have you not liked? What do you want to hear more of in 2023? What guests would you like to come on? Any insights that you have, I love going on and reading the reviews, and it is a free, quick, and easy way that you can support me and the show. Then, in the spirit of today's episode, go to the link in the show notes where you can explore a whole new portion of my website that is dedicated to veganism, vegan travel, animal rights activism, and more. There, you'll find free guides on how to travel the world as a vegan, how to eat plant-based on a budget, and you will hear incredible stories from activists like this one today. All right, let's get into it. Hello, Alexandra. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. As I sent you over some questions ahead of time, there's so much I want to talk to you about. So we're going to do our best (laughs) to just, you know, flow our way through with some different topics. But you have done so much, which I already knew kind of when I first knew you. But then when I researched you for this podcast episode, my mind was blown. So... um, Well, I'm very happy to be here, Kaylin. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah. I can't wait to talk to you about um, activism that you've done and some of the athletic things that you've done in your whole career. But I like to start my guests off with a surprise question. 
And my question for you is, if you were running a political campaign or you were a superhero, either one, what would your tagline be? Oh, my tagline. <laughs> um, be kind, be kind, be kind. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's what Ingrid from uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals says, and I just think it's so important. <laughs> so I'd be a very, I'd be a superhero that would make everyone feel good about themselves and they would be kind to others. I love that. I feel like that's what you already do, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your childhood to begin because you've done all these amazing things and I'm just wondering what your roots are like, but I read that you are born in New York and then you also spent time in Paris. Can you tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like? I have a twin sister, an identical twin sister, Caroline, and a younger brother, Jonathan, who's two and a half years younger. And my parents um, uh, were, uh, my dad was an investment banker, very conservative. My mother was born in England, very liberal, and she became more liberal. And she, I think when she, as she found herself, she became more liberal. I think in the beginning when she first married my dad in 1960 or so, she just was whatever he was. And then... She became more herself as she got older, as we all do, as I certainly have. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we lived in Manhattan. And then my dad's work took him to France twice for two years each. And so I learned French uh, when I was eight and nine. I went to a French school and I learned French. I was bilingual at the time. Now I would say I'm just fluent because I don't speak it very much. I mean, yeah. I've hardly spoken it in uh, 50 years. Yeah. So. So what was that like growing up with, I guess, two parents being opposite in some ways? Because I feel like you're such an earth lover, animal lover, activist. Was that something that was nurtured in your childhood? Or how did that first kind of come into your life? I think we were aware of social issues. Not, and politics maybe a little bit because my parents were, uh, had vastly different outlooks mm -hmm. and but my dad was an animal lover he was extremely conservative but he was an animal lover my mother is not um so warm and fuzzy about animals like my dad was but she took excellent care of our animals like we had really strict rules in terms of we had to uh, we had horses mm -hmm. we rode horses something i don't do now as a vegan but and we had to ride them every day for an hour we had to walk our dogs for an hour if we lived in the city they were just always really well taken care of. And mm. um, my mom was about that. Um, and she also volunteered a lot. So she gave blood and she boycotted things in the, like tuna fish because the dolphins were dying and grapes because the workers were getting sick from the pesticides. Mm -hmm. So things like that. So we had a sort of a, and we recycled because she was British and grew up during the war and therefore she didn't waste anything. Mm -hmm. So we kind of grew up with this uh, feeling that we could make a difference by doing things uh, for the world. And my dad was supportive. I think, I mean, I don't remember him ever saying we shouldn't recycle or anything. And he certainly loved animals, but there were jokes like, my dad would never call Kennedy Airport Kennedy Airport because it was named after John F. Kennedy, a liberal, and he would call it Idlewild, which is the, the name it was before it was named John F. Kennedy. It was mostly a joke, just to, just to nudge mom, and, and, and then 
later his very liberal kids. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it seems like from what I've been able to read about your siblings, everyone's very liberal and active, so. And my mom has said, and my parents did get divorced when we were when my sister and I were 16, but my mom has said that she admires my father because she does, doesn't think that she would have been able to be as supportive of our activism as he was if we were active in conservative politics and social issues. My dad was really supportive of all of our activism. Part of him wanted, it feels like part of him wanted to be like a rebel, um, but he just couldn't be. Yeah. So he wrote very much the um, good, good provider script. Yeah. You know, I relate with that a little bit. My dad I wouldn't say he's extremely conservative or anything like that, but he usually just doesn't say anything. Uh, and, and, you know, we've argued about things over the years, but he's been very supportive of me, even though that's not his core belief on something, which is a really nice feeling. Yeah, yeah, that's it is. And that's like my dad. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's great to know. So to fast forward a little bit, I read that you, instead of going to college... Uh, you ended up pursuing your career in modeling and acting. And I'm just wondering, you know, a lot of people listening, I interview a lot of people who didn't go to school and they ended up just doing whatever their heart was telling them to do. Uh, and I'm wondering how you kind of trusted your body and your intuition to make that decision at a young age. I was 16 when I started modeling, so I was, I was in high school at the time, and I went to a very small prep school that basically funneled kids to Ivy Leagues, and I was, out of 66 students in my class, I was the only one who didn't go to college. So you can oh. see, and I, and I applied to college, and I got into college, um, but I chose not to go uh, three weeks before, because by that time, my acting career had started. Um, I was cast in a movie about models and they were looking at models. They were auditioning models. And mm -hmm. so I got the lead in, in that TV movie. It was called Paper Dolls and it was in 1982. My mother had gone back to college when she was 40 and she always used to say, college is wasted on the young. So when I decided <laughs> not to go to college, she couldn't really say much. She wasn't very happy. <laughs> um, but, and also there was also thought in the back of the mind that I would go later. University. I got into Stanford University. I assumed that I would just end up going to college later. But when I was in Hollywood at 18 doing my first role, I realized that if I waited until I was 21 or 22 to start my career, I might miss out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all so old when we're 18. <laughs> so, I don't, but I actually think it was a smart move career wise. Yeah. And although I, I'm sorry in a lot of ways that I didn't go to college, but um, I, I, it's like it was a great trade-off. So I couldn't have done both mm -hmm. and at that time and at the same time. And um, I went to a, a prep school, so I got a lot of the college experience. I went to a boarding school in high school, so I didn't miss out completely. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's so interesting. And I feel like there's so many times where young people are forced to make that decision whether they're going to go to college or pursue something else, it's like you have to do it now. 
so I'm always, yeah, wondering how people navigate that for young people listening to the show who might have to do that soon too. Well, you can always go to college. You can. And, um, and, and often you do better because you're a little older and um, wiser. You just know how to study and you've got more discipline. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I just had to seize what was in front of me, which was at that moment uh, um, a career in acting. One that I'd never saw myself in, so mm-hmm. I thought, hmm, couldn't I didn't imagine that here, forty years later, that I would still be an actress. Yeah. <laughs> so, but here I am, and happily so. So, <laughs> yay! You followed that instinct. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I want to talk about a couple things I wanted to focus on with you today. One, your activism. To our relationship with the body because you've helped me and I feel like you've probably helped so many other people get back to that relationship and and kind of figure it out. So my first question for you when you got into acting and modeling, one, uh, what messages were you receiving about your body and at that time did you kind of have a way to cope with that or was that something you just kind of took in and, and you know, because that was the thing. <laughs> Yeah, I I did something, I threw myself right into the fire. Uh, I had been anorexic when I was 15. And then when everybody said I had to start eating again, I started eating again and I couldn't stop. So I became bulimic. So Mm -hmm. I, and then I was bulimic for the next 12 years. So God knows why I actually entered into the worst thing that you could do as a, um, you know, as a teenager struggling with eating issues. Now, the eating issues were partially about my body. Mm-hmm. They were a lot also about control and wanting to be in control and feeling out of control. And so I was controlling food. And when I couldn't control food uh, and I was binging, I would end up purging because that was how to sort of try and control the binging. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, yeah, I became a model. <laughs> and they told me that I was... They would bother me about my weight, saying, you know, just lose a few pounds. Mm -hmm. I wasn't overweight by any means, by the way. But back then in the early 80s, this was 1980, Mm -hmm. you know, the look was was pretty thin. And um, it just, it made me worse. Mm -hmm. It it made bulimia so bad that after one summer and then um, one summer, then going back to school and graduating and then coming out again and taking a year off before going to Stanford, um, I, I left after six months of modeling because my bulimia was so bad. Mm-hmm. But before I left, I had auditioned for this TV movie. Mm-hmm. And so I was living with my boyfriend in Canada, you know, figuring I was going to start school in September. And I got a call saying, you know, you got the job. Uh, and we want to fly you to LA mm-hmm. um, and you're going to play this model. Well, after being a model, becoming an actress is like being totally free because you didn't have to be 35, 25, 35. There was, mm-hmm. you didn't have to have these certain measurements. They wanted you to look pretty, but there's so many ways to do that. More now ways to do that, mm-hmm. accepted but back then, still it felt unburdened for me to go into acting. I didn't feel as much pressure mm-hmm. um, from the acting world. I already had enough pressure as a girl in growing up in the United States. That's right. what we all feel. So I don't think acting put an initial pressure on me to lose weight, but modeling certainly did. 
And how did you... Yeah, because that's such a good point, right? Like, growing up as a female in the U.S. is already one thing. And then being a model in Hollywood adds on a whole nother layer. How did you, you know, throughout time even start to, like, peel back those layers and get into healing? Because, yeah, I, I've learned from you and listening to you and Dotsie on Switch for Good that a lot of this is not just about our bodies, it's about wanting to be in control of something. And then I also feel like there's all the conditions from society on top of that. So how did you even start to like, look, get all that off and, you know, just get back to you? <laughs> yeah, get back to me. That was the key, by the way, Kaylin, you just said is that one of the big reason why I was bulimic for 12 years is that I was not my authentic self. Mm -hmm. I really please everybody. I thought being nice was the most important thing. And just to parse, nice is different from being kind, which I really value now. Mm -hmm. Nice is trying to make everyone else happy. Kind is an action that you take from your inner soul. You do. Um, that's how I look at it. So I really wanted to be nice. I thought that was the most important thing. And mm -hmm. now I see that being respected and respecting yourself is really more important than being nice. Mm -hmm. And being kind to others because you want to be you feel it's the right thing. Hmm. Uh, I believe that we all pick our poisons and I, pretty much most humans that I've met have some poison that they, that they use to make themselves feel better, feel yeah. accepted. And I picked food because I was a girl mm -hmm. and I had the extra pressure of being thin. I want people expecting me. I felt to be thin. And then, um, I picked food cause I was a good girl. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't do any drugs or drink, so that wasn't my thing, or smoking, or I didn't, want, I didn't like shopping. So it just fit my personality. Mm -hmm. So that's why food. And I was in therapy from 16 to 28. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was in therapy that whole time. And therapy taught me about uh, how I needed to be more authentic. And it wasn't until, and I would always say it was about the food. No, mm -hmm. I just want to be thin. If only I could control my appetites. Mm. That was a good thing too, right? Yeah. I, I, my voice got super quiet in my teens and 20s so that sound um, people, engineers, would tell me to speak up on the set because I wasn't being heard. Now that's not a problem yeah. at all. <laughs> I really had a soft voice because I was not speaking my truth, literally. Mm. And my appetite, so sexual appetite, um, I was very sexual and I, I don't, I think I actually, my mom, we grew up in the country. I think sex was a, I had a healthy view on sex, mm -hmm. but you know, girls are not supposed to be a certain way. They're supposed to not want it too much and not be too aggressive and things like that. So yeah. that messaging, being smaller physically and being smaller, um, psychically was, I guess, something I was striving for because mm -hmm. I wanted to be accepted. Um, so therapy helped me see that and how that I needed to start setting boundaries. And once I started setting boundaries, my bulimia got much better. Mm -hmm. And that meant not doing things that I didn't want to do, um, not not being friends with people that I didn't really want to be friends with, not saying yes to guys who wanted to go to lunch because I was afraid to hurt their feelings if, they said, if I said no, you know, things like that that a lot of girls deal with. Um, and so then I... I was down to, after 12 years, I was down to throwing up, maybe binging and throwing up maybe once a month. 
Mm-hmm. And it would be like three times in a day of binging and purging, binging, purging. It was that down to once a month? And I thought that was how it was going to be. Because mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine not having this deep desire to binge, which would come upon me, sweep me up. And I also had a feeling in my chest that was a little painful, like empty, that I felt like I had to fill or cover. Um, and then I went to Overeaters Anonymous because mm-hmm. my friend Jocelyn asked me how my throwing up was doing. I was very honest with my friends and my family that I was bulimic. I just wouldn't tell them exactly when I was going to throw up. I would tell them after, like, oh, yeah, I had a bad night yeah. last night. Um, and I said, oh, I'm doing fine. And she said, is fine good enough? And I realized, oh, fine's not good enough. But I just couldn't see me ever being someone who didn't have these huge desires to binge and then Mm-hmm. And so I went, she said, let me bring you to Overeaters Anonymous, and um, which has um, meetings for bulimics and anorexics and 20-somethings, which is what I was. Um, it's very important to go to a meeting where you can relate to what other people are dealing with. And I saw people who no longer threw up, and I was like, oh, if they can do it, maybe I can. And then with, and I started doing the 12 Steps. And I called my sponsor every day, and within a month of going to OA, I stopped throwing up. Mm-hmm. And I haven't thrown up in 32 years. And I would say in that 32 years, maybe like 10 times I've felt like, oh, I kind of want to binge. Yeah. I haven't even binged. Because I started doing the steps really helped assert myself and get rid of shame and guilt. and. Mm-hmm. And starting to create boundaries. And it sounds like your boundaries weren't even around food. They were around relationships in your life. They were around people. (laughs) Ding, 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 yes. It wasn't about, it really wasn't about the food. Food was a manifestation of my inner pain. Yeah. That was what it is. It's just a man. So when people, I always do tell people when they're saying, oh, they're not eating enough. They're, They're too thin. I say, no, ask those questions if you know they have a relative who seems to have an eating disorder ask them how they're feeling not what they're eating mm-hmm. or how much they're eating ask them or how little or ask them what their feelings are because that's really the key mm-hmm. yeah that which I feel like is such uh I, I thought that I guess I would have realized that before but I felt like I really learned that from hearing that from you and so I feel like it's something that most people don't realize, I guess, when, when they're going through that, which I certainly haven't. So how have you, because I know now you coach people and you help them um, with their relationship to food and themselves, and then obviously with their just boundaries in general, how did you kind of come up with your core guiding principles of that? Because not that so many people get it wrong, but I know I've heard other people coaching people, right? And it's really about restriction and a diet and, and things like that. So how did you come up with the way that you coach people and help people? So I decided to become a coach um, in about six years ago um, when my acting career was slowing down and I wasn't getting parts that were really meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't getting paid a lot either. So it was, there, wasn't, there wasn't any money. There wasn't any meaningfulness to the parts and they weren't that exciting to me. Mm-hmm. So... I thought, what else am I going to do? Because I don't want to just sit around and wait for the phone to call, uh, the phone to ring. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I want to help people. When I was, when I turned fifty, I decided that the second half of my life was going to be about helping people and animals. That was going to be my focus. And 
So I took a coaching course, um, a certification. Um, I've taken several now. And the, the principle of that is that the client knows the answer. I don't know the answer. The client has the answer. They know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. They know how they want to eat. And if they want to eat differently than how I want to eat, they should be allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I just help them reach how they want to eat. Um, that, that is, I think, the most, most important thing is that they, there's so much information on the Internet. They don't need me telling them what's healthy. I want to know. They know already. Yeah. I want to know what they can uh, fit into their lives. How healthy do they want to be? Maybe they only want to be a little bit healthier. And that's fine. That's their choice. Right. So you're just giving them the tools to get there. They already know what they want to do. They sometimes don't know, but we, I do ask they, because I have a lot of clients who are just overridden by the feeling that they should be super healthy. They should be running marathons. They should be never eating junk food. Mm-hmm. And so they think this is, this is what they want, but really they don't because they have competing other competing wants, which is socializing with friends or um, watching their favorite television shows with their partner. You know, they have other things that make their life happy. And so they don't want to spend several hours a day working out. Um, mm-hmm. And if they don't want to, it's totally their choice. Cause, and they know that working out maybe a certain amount of time is healthy, but they've decided that with their kids and their job and their partner and their other things, they can't fit that in. So I try and make it so that they feel good about what they're doing. Because they have, it's not just exercise and food and sleep. Health is about a full rounded life, which just can be really busy and overwhelming. For sure. Which is what I really appreciated when we you started uh, helping me. You were asking me, like, you know, what do you want to feel like? What are these goals? Because so many people, it's just about, I guess, being skinny or being on a certain type of diet, which made me go, yeah, you're right. Like, I do really enjoy these foods and I want to have them and I enjoy working out most of the time. So I'll do it most of the time. And it's not like this thing where you have to feel guilty about what you actually want to do. Because a lot of times I feel like, you know, with social media, which is another thing I want to ask you about, but I feel like it's hard sometimes because you see so many curated images of people. And so I'll think I want to look like that just because I've seen it so many times. And then I'll stop and go, I don't actually want to. I just want to enjoy my life and enjoy my body. And uh, yeah, so... What have you seen change, right? Because when you were first getting into acting and modeling, of course there were, you know, there's all types of media, but now there's the social media. Have you seen this big shift in how people, I guess, relate to themselves and their bodies? Or do you feel like it didn't really impact that much? I think there's always been social pressure to look a different, a certain way. And mm-hmm. in different societies, that's different. You know, I'm happy that over since I was um, a teenager that the um, the definition of beauty has widened so that people are more um, accepting of different kinds of bodies because partly of social media. So there's the good and the bad right. with social media. Um, but I do think I'm so, I'm not really much on social media. I do feel, wow, the kids growing up today, seeing these curated images of, 
you know, people only put their happiest, most successful moments usually on uh, Instagram, or if they put I, um, some, you know, heartfelt messaging, they're still looking, you know, amazing, or maybe they're yeah. crying, dramatic. I, it's just very, it's the highlights of a life. It's not the in-between daily stuff of life. And so people think that their lives are supposed to be full of highlights like that, mm-hmm. and that they don't have them, that somehow they're they're missing, it's their fault. And a lot of girls, women, if I'm to take from my experience and, and what I've observed, have a lot of shoulds and feel shame, so much shame and guilt for who they are. Mm-hmm. Because they don't match what social media or what used to be magazines, mm-hmm. um, television, uh, would, was asking them to become. Yeah, to- totally. And... That actually takes me to another question for you, which is in a different direction, but along the same lines, because I've heard you speak about when you, well, I'm, sh- I'm sure you still do the same thing, but when you started, you know, in the acting modeling industry, not using um, products tested on animals or wearing fur and different things like that, how did you kind of go into that and decide that's what you were going to do? Because you talked about how you were so quiet for a while. And then I'm sure there's that pressure to just conform and like wear what they tell you to wear and use the brands they, I mean, I'm sure there's pressure to not argue, you know, fight with them along steps of the way. So can you tell me a little bit about that? That's a, that's a good point. Um, It seems counter to my personality that I would have stuck to my guns on, nope, that's a very violent metaphor. I would have stuck to my um, principles, Mm -hmm. um, but I never had a problem sticking to principles hmm. I was never and peer pressure was not something that I was I, like I didn't feel pressure to drink or um, do drugs or uh, get breast implants in Hollywood or that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, because I I guess well I know the breast implants is because I just wasn't raised in a culture that thought that big breasts were special I mm-hmm. thought all breasts were different and they were fine. Like I yeah. didn't really think a lot about breasts. But when I became in my 20s and 30s and it was in Hollywood and a lot of people were getting breast implants, it never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't. Um, and then drugs and alcohol, I was an athlete and I just didn't. And a lot of the cool kids in my school weren't nice. And you know how I think nice was important. Yeah. They, weren't, they weren't kind. And I didn't want to be around that. Yeah. So when I, yes, when I was... When I first started paying taxes when I was 16, because from my modeling, I, I wouldn't pay the telephone tax. Because back then, the telephone tax went directly to the defense um, department. Mm-hmm. Not the case anymore. And so I just would include a little note in my taxes saying, I'm not paying my telephone tax because it goes to the defense department, and I don't believe in um, nuclear weapons and war. Yeah. But, and I just, and actually, they never asked for my telephone. You know, I was going to say, could you just do that? Could you just say, no, thanks? <laughs> um, I guess. I mean, they didn't pay much attention. I was paying so little taxes. Yeah. So, yeah. Probably knew. Uh, I was, yeah. No, so I'm sorry. I wasn't paying taxes. It was when I was paying my telephone bill that I, I w- wouldn't pay the tax on the telephone. I don't know why they never went after me. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that. So when I became an actress, I was already vegetarian, mm-hmm. and um, I was already um, aware of, I, when I was modeling, I wouldn't do any fur or tobacco. Um, that was pretty easy just to say that. I wasn't the only person who wouldn't do tobacco, so 
mm-hmm. drawing line. And then when um, my first year in acting, I just decided that I wasn't going to, I wasn't using products myself tested on animals. Um, so I decided that I was going to ask for makeup that wasn't tested on animals. And um, how did you finally make the switch from vegetarian to vegan? What was it for you that was like, nope, done with dairy, done with this? What was that moment? Or maybe it was a process. I don't know. It was a huge process because it took me 33 years. I went vegan when I was 14 after reading a book called Diet for a Small Planet, which was really a treatise on um, giving up meat for environmental reasons. Mm-hmm. So, and then I read Animal Liberation, did a book report on it a couple years later and became more cognizant of the animal side. Yeah. Um, then I, so then I gave up products tested on animals. But then I met Krista Rose, who is the um, head of uh, Last Chance for Animals and the founder of Last Chance for Animals. And he's been an activist since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he wasn't wearing wool, leather, or silk, so I gave those things up, or any kind of products that were uh, tested on animals, like um, kitchen products and things. Mm-hmm. So I just did makeup, and then I just expanded to almost everything that I could. Um, so there I was, not eating meat, not eating, and not wearing animals or use, exploiting them. Mm-hmm. However, I still had dairy. And, and dairy took me a long time because I used my eating disorder as a reason not to make the switch. Mm-hmm. I would pray that by taking out dairy, I'd restrict myself and I would go back to my bulimia or something. Because even though I, even though I have not been uh, binged or purged in three decades, I always feel I say that I'm a million miles away, but I could get there in a second. Yeah. So I, I have to be, and you do. You have to be vigilant when you've had an addiction or a habit you can't take it for granted ever yeah. somebody once said it's like being on a road and you're on this path and it's a healthy path but there's always a ditch right next to them <laughs> i was visiting my brother um in 2010 who he was in jail for an animal rights um action and i was visiting him and he always would talk about you know dairy's just an excretion it's mostly filled with pots and things and it never we you know, you kind of you get a little defensive and you kind of turn off. Yeah. But this time, for some reason, after I flew back home and I called my husband, I said, I'm done. I'm not doing any more dairy. And that was it. And I don't know if it was anything, something specifically my brother said. Mm-hmm. I also know that my friend Nick, um, uh, Nick Tyler, who is, he works for Mercy for Animals. But back then we were working on a project together and I was vegetarian and he was vegan. He's been vegan since forever. And Remember I was telling him why I wasn't vegan and he just looked at me and he just listened. He just listened. I'm telling, well, cause I had an eating disorder and I'm worried that I'm going to, and I'm listening because he's not saying anything. Yeah. He's not arguing with me. I could hear myself. I heard how stupid I sounded. And it was, it was really a moment of a learning how if you just like, don't try and fight back. People will sometimes listen to their own selves and recognize whether what they're saying is, um, uh, smart or not and um secondly i really heard myself that it really wasn't a good reason and so it was really those two factors that made me decide okay and then that was that uh, and it was postscript it actually made my relationship with my body and my food even better because <laughs> now i have this higher power like my diet and my values are aligned right so there's nothing better than that 
And now you're reaching so many people through the Switch for Good podcast where you're talking about what it can be like to give up dairy and the health benefits and the ethical side. So I just, I, I think that's great. I feel like, yeah, there's this activation that happens when you start living aligned with how you feel inside. And it's like, wow, that felt really, really good. And then it just becomes your baseline, which is a really great yeah, feeling. That's exactly right. I... It's funny that it didn't happen when I was a vegetarian. Maybe it did, mm -hmm. but being a vegan changed me so much, yeah. so much more. I, I mean, I probably was changed as a vegetarian, but I was 14, so I was changing like crazy anyway. Yeah. But being vegan was, it was amazing how my outlook on the world changed. I saw more injustice everywhere mm -hmm. and didn't feel powerless or angry, just saw it like and felt more love. And it was like I say, I, I say that my it was like my heart cracked open, and it really did. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you've done so much, which I'm a huge fan of, so much civil disobedience. I mean, for so many different things, including animal rights. Um, and I wanted to ask you about a couple things that I saw that you did, and we'll get back to veganism as well, because I'd love to ask you about Open Rescue. But I saw that you walked across the USA for over five weeks on the Great Peace March for Global Nuclear Disarmament. Um, and then I think you were arrested a dozen times at the nuclear uh, testing site. Can you tell me a little bit about, A, what that walk or that march was like? Um, and then why you started getting into civil disobedience, like why you thought that was important and something worthy of your time? So it was the early 80s and... Um... I belong to Southern Californians for a nuclear freeze. And I was just reading Helen Caldicott, who people should read because there was a lot in the zeitgeist about nuclear weapons because mm -hmm. we were still, there was still a cold war going on with the uh, USSR. Now, now it's broken. USSR no longer exists, but Russia was part of that. And it's satellite countries. But um, so there was a lot of fear. There were tens of thousands of nuclear weapons mm -hmm. uh, on each side and they could go. And I was, I pretty much just felt like I wasn't going to live till I was 35 mm. because I figured one of them would go off by mistake, if not by design. And so I joined the great peace march, which was a piece across the United States. I only went five and a half weeks and I was planning to go the whole nine months, but I went five and a half weeks because when I got to Vegas, uh, we walked from LA to Vegas um, in that time, and it took so long because we ran out of water and food. There were 1,200 people who started, and only 200 people made it to Vegas. Oh, wow. And so, because we ran out of funding and food, and it was, we stayed in the desert for two weeks because we weren't sure we were going to get enough um, water. And then I think Paul Newman or somebody, some big, big celebrity gave, donated so that there could be enough water for this motley crew to cross yeah. and, um it was an amazing experience i went to every organizational meeting and it was just an amazing experience but when i got to vegas my i i, I was severely bulimic i was in my 20s i was still bulimic my bulimia had not reared its head when i was on the peace march you know walking every day it just wasn't there but when i got to vegas and i came to all the processed food and the city life and this and that i just i had a binge and i per and i was afraid and i i thought mm -hmm. i don't think i can handle this and so i went home 
So it's just a sad story of how our addictions can get in the way of our dreams. Um, For sure. But, um, you know, good things happened. I got, I was cast in a, a movie, Dragnet, with Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks, like, a few weeks later, and, and that led to another movie. And then, So, you know, it wasn't all a bad decision, mm-hmm. but um, anyway, so I was really really was passionate about peace issues and uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons. And now it's great to know that, yeah, we have a lot of nuclear weapons on this planet, but far, far fewer than we did in the 80s. Far fewer. Like, I think it's 5,000 in the United States as opposed to 30,000 that there used to be and on each side. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, all we need is two, really. I mean, you don't need very many nuclear weapons to just have it. I don't know why we have 5,000. It must be the military industrial complex exactly um anyway while i was uh while i was walking uh i became aware of the nuclear the nevada test site where they test nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. so i started going there several times a year and peacefully protesting and i i learned civil disobedience i got trained and so i i did that every year once or twice a year for a long time years Mm -hmm. and um was arrested and i spent I only spent uh, two and a half days in jail then because then the government couldn't afford to put all these people in jail so they had to stop, which is part of the reason you want to, you know, you want to cause the government to notice. This, unfortunately, they still test the weapons, but, yeah. you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, I just, I so I did civil disobedience uh, for that, and then it expanded, and I did it in 1991 for... Um, AIDS patients who were trying to get uh, drugs fast-tracked, mm-hmm. and um, that was interesting. Um, and then I did it for the electric car in um, early 2000s, and twice against the Iraq War, where I was in jail for five and a half days. Mm-hmm. And uh, because we peace people, we don't pay our fines to get out, because that would go to the government whom we're protesting. Right. So... <laughs> Yeah. So even though it was a twenty-five dollar fine, I was supposed to pay for um, disrupting the peace uh, when I was protesting the Iraq War. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we we just, in fact, we we went to jail. We chose to go to jail, and, and I, I had to hire an attorney, and he was a criminal attorney, and he was so nervous on the day of my trial. And I'm like, "Are you okay, John?" And he says, "I've never had a client who says they want to go to jail that not to fight for them because that's what." We peace people, we don't fight for us not to go to jail. We have to continue right. to fight. Right. So, yeah. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I, I love that he's all nervous. Like, this is not what normally happens. Right. Right. Exactly. So what have you learned through all that civil disobedience? Because, you know, there's a, mo- a lot of people listening to this podcast, right? They're on the same boat. They, they see how it's effective. They see how it is empowering, but what lessons have you personally learned through all these years of being arrested and not even paying the $25 fine and walking across the U.S. for five weeks? What, yeah, what still sticks with you from that? Nonviolence is key. You have to be nonviolent and you have to, I as a white middle-class woman, and now I'm almost 60, I know that I have a power Mm -hmm. that I risk the courts and jail because of my privilege. Whereas a lot of other activists can't do that. They're male, which is much harder in jail if you're mm-hmm. male, you're man. 
Um, they are people of color. We all know that interacting with the police as a person of color is dangerous right. in the United States. Um, so I'm in a position where I can do this kind of activism, which is why I feel it's so important that I do do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, there's so many ways to be an activist. No one is better than another. It's just that I'm able to do this, take risks. I, I have a job that, you know, doesn't... I'm an actress, you know, those actors go to jail all the time for drugs and DUI. I'm going to jail for food and for animals. No, it doesn't affect my career at all. They don't mind. They don't care. Whereas right. some people have to really, their certification is, could get taken away or sure. they get fired or they have to show up at work on Monday morning. For sure. So there have been a couple of act, actions that I haven't been able to go through with fully because I had to work the next day and I wanted to show up for work too. So because I, and I have a husband who's really super understanding and I, and uh, he, he takes care of the cats if I'm in jail. So I'm able to, to do that. Yeah. There's a and lot that goes into being able to be arrested and, and, and then be okay. Right. To mm-hmm. know that you're, yeah, something's not gonna, something terrible is not going to happen to you. You're going to come back out and yeah, which is huge. Cause I didn't realize, I, I feel like when I first started civil disobedience, I wasn't understanding of all these different intersections and white privilege and um, police brutality, all of these different things. And so, yeah, it makes so much sense now that with all these privileges, like if you, if you can do it, um, it, it's an important thing to do. It's yeah. Yeah. uh, That's what, what I feel. But if you, if you just don't want to do it because it doesn't suit your personality, there are other things to do too, you know, with, standing on a street corner with a sign or writing a check or posting on social media, writing letters. There's, there's so many other things to do to make a difference. For sure. Most of my social circle comes from my activism. Mm-hmm. So I think people working together towards one goal <clears throat> is very powerful and it can really bring you together. And I have friends from 30 years ago where we were activists together in the peace movement or electric car movement and we're still friends today because we have this our heart is bonded by the work that we did together and also our shared values and mm-hmm. the fun times we had because being an activist is fun too you know you really when you're working with other people whom you admire it makes you not feel so alone in your convictions yeah. which often to a lot of people seem extreme quote unquote I will say that there's nothing more invigorating than being in a room planning something with people who believe the same thing you do, whether it's a fundraiser or an open rescue Mm -hmm. um, or a cleanup of city streets or a bake sale. It's all just, uh, there's a higher power there that is so moving and, and invigorating. So if anybody, I remember once Ann Landers, you're probably too young to know who Ann Landers. I am. I don't know who that is. <laughs> she, was a, she was a columnist. Her and her twin sister, Dear Abby, were rival columnists, advice columnists. Wow. And I would read them in the paper uh, every day. And one time somebody wrote in said they were depressed. And she said, go out and help somebody else and you won't be depressed anymore. And maybe a little simplistic, but it's true that if you reach for something higher and outside yourself, especially in a community you can't help but feel something, the endorphins or serotonin, something starts kicking in. Yeah, for sure, which I, I feel like I've missed a bit during the pandemic because there hasn't been 
that same in-person community, um, which is why I wanted to hear you speak about, you know, what that, that feeling is like, because I feel like there's a lot of teenagers now who are doing a lot of the online activism, which is amazing, right? Because we need it all, like you said, but my hope is for them to be able to also experience uh, that in-person bond and, and that serotonin and all of that stuff that you said, because I feel like it really is life-changing and it, and it makes you feel normal, you know, with the air quote, it makes you feel normal because you're with people with shared values. So thank you for speaking about that. Yeah, I highly encourage, even if it's, yeah, just to be around people who share your in person to share your values, which is invigorating, but to actually be planning something that you believe is for the betterment of the world, it takes it to a higher level. Yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of planning things that are <laughs> better for someone else, I wanted to ask you about Open Rescue. And can you just tell us what Open Rescue is for those who don't know? And two, why you think Open Rescue is important in the world today? So Open Rescue is a liberation of animals who are confined and or abused. And the, we, the rescuers, don't cover our faces, um, and we document the, the situation and share it with the world. And then we also share the story of the animal who's been rescued, their, um, their new life in a sanctuary, to give mm. hope and show that it's not only terrible, it can also have a beautiful ending. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a powerful tool against corporations because... When people go in with their faces uncovered and say, this is wrong, you are, treat, you are mistreating animals, then the corporation is sort of forced to either um, ignore you or to bring you to court where the, the true story of, of what's going on behind those closed doors will be seen. And mm-hmm. so that's why most of the time they don't want to bring you to court and the charges are dropped. They might charge you with something, uh, but, uh, but usually the charges are dropped, mm-hmm. not always. But um, so, yeah, that's what Open Rescue is. And it's a nonviolent, um, re- it's a nonviolent rescue. Right. And uh, there's no recrimination against workers. Um, it's about the system. So it's not about the individuals as much as it's about the system of animal oppression in our country or around the world. Yeah. And you've, you've participated in multiple of these. And how did you feel after you did the action? I've done, uh, oh yeah, I have been there for open rescues. You're right. I remember seeing you there actually. That like left my mind. (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm used to doing them, you know, like in the dead of night where no one's seeing them. So when the open rescue concept became a thing, I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. Um, we do open rescues also in the dead of night because you don't want to be caught, right. but you do open rescues either. Yeah. on mass in groups during the day. There's an amazing, my favorite photo ever is this, um, in Italy of just hundreds of people descending upon a lab that was raising beagle puppies for mm-hmm. testing. And they just climbed the fence, went in and took out dogs and they're, and the, the pictures of this little baby beetle being handed over a fence, oh, it's so beautiful, um, to, to a, a waiting human to rescue them. And that was, I think the, the facility was overwhelmed. They yeah. Didn't know what to do. Um, and in Canada, they did that. And I mean, there's, there's 
there's recrimination often against the activists, but compared to what the animals are going through, what humans end up, you know, spending behind bars is nothing. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so we, you can do open rescues at night because, you know, a lot of times you want to get into the facility and you wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. Um, but you can also do them during the day. Um, a lot of times because the facilities are so big mm-hmm. and the workers are so, there's such high turnover, they don't really... I'm wondering, um, have you felt like open rescues have been impactful afterwards when you look back and reflect on how they changed that one animal's lives and how they, you know, the media took it and the people around you? Yeah, what were your thoughts? I think every bit of activism helps. It moves the needle forward because humans need to have many messages in different forms uh, to be able to uh, have their their minds changed and their perspectives opened. So uh, Open Rescue, the good thing about Open Rescue is that it's, it's different from the Animal Liberation Front of the 70s and 80s, and there are still Animal Liberation Front people out there today who mm-hmm. cover their faces. And because of terrorism being so at the front forefront of people's minds, uh, when you go into a farm um, and you don't cover your face, the government or the corporation can't accuse you, can't paint you mm. as a terrorist in any way. You don't look like a terrorist. You know, we're wearing glasses and gloves and, you know, jacket. You know, we just look like ourselves. Yeah. Um, sometimes we're in biosecure gear, but otherwise, you know, they can't accuse us of looking threatening because we don't. We're going, we're cuddling little animals and walking out of the farm. Uh, mm. That's... Yeah, so it's a very powerful image. It definitely was something that uh, journalism was interested in, and the media was interested in for a while, and now apparently they're not, as it's harder to get stories of open rescue published. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that's a reason to stop, because, you know, we're doing it also for the animal themselves, and also just because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes you just do it because it's the right thing. And... Um, that's powerful. And social media, we still have the ability to post it on social media, of course. And I, I read all the time about people became vegan because they saw a video. They saw a video of something. So right. social media is very powerful. Yeah, and that's also very powerful, just doing something because it feels like the right thing to do. <laughs> Which I think can uh, take us to places we weren't expecting before when we just follow that gut instinct. So thank you for, for sharing that point. Um, and that brings me actually to the last question that I wanted to ask you was how, after all these incredible disruptions, demonstrations, civil disobedience, and just being someone who's so aware and tapped into what is happening to, I mean, humans, animal and the earth, how do you keep going and how do you deal with grief if you feel any for these things, which I'm assuming you do, but everyone I think grieves in different ways. Yeah, how, first of all, how do you deal with that grief? Second of all, how do you keep going and and have you ever experienced burnout? And if so, how do you kind of recoup from that? Um, so yes, I've experienced grief and I sometimes I can't sleep if I think of animals. Um, mm-hmm what's happening to so many billions and billions of them, I can't sleep. So I have to force myself to think of something else. But 
taking action is empowering and pushes aside grief and you start feeling just powerful and hopeful that you can help. And also being around people who share the same values and feel as passionately about an issue as you do makes you feel less alone. So um, as I said, it can be invigorating um, to focusing on what's good instead of just wallowing in what's bad and what we can't do, mm -hmm. uh, feeling helpless. And as for burnout, I have good boundaries because of my eating disorder. I've learned to put up good boundaries. So I have a really um, great personal life with my husband and my, fam my mom and my siblings and my coaching and acting. So I have a balance. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and my activism is also super important. But I don't – I make sure that I don't um, – lean too much into one direction. If I do, I just pull back for a little bit if I feel uh, like I need a break. Mm -hmm. um, I think working in, in groups can be very taxing because humans are, well, we're just capricious creatures. We have feelings and emotion and we sometimes don't get along and, and, <laughs> and it can be tough working in a group. So I've, and I, I've started several nonprofits and I, so I know how hard it is to sometimes, um, you know, work with people. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm super easy and non-confrontational, I find it for me what's best is to work on my own and to ally with different groups of people um, for different projects, but not put all my eggs in a really tight basket mm -hmm. of just dealing with the same people um, and letting, letting them... You know, I do I do quite a few of my own projects. You know, I've done a lot of dairy investigations, and I and I was I led those and, and, and got people to work with me, and then I worked with an organization after I got the information. But I uh, just have found for me, it's better not to be too entwined with an one organization. Um, so that's just that's my for me, but. For people, some people really like that intensity, and yeah. I loved it too when I was younger. And I think I just have less um, less tolerance for drama, human drama. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's why I, I tend to be a little more removed. Yeah, and, uh, still, still involved. Yeah, which I I feel like that's such a great piece of advice because. And probably, I'm sure in any movement, but definitely in the animal rights movement, you know, when you stick with one organization, eventually there's going to be drama and then it can feel like your whole life is kind of upturned if that was your whole life. So I can see the value in, um, yeah, kind of not spreading out so that you're so thin in different areas, but working with different people and collaborating and how healthy that could feel. So thank you for that piece of advice. You're very welcome. Yes. So we are almost at our time. Is there anything else that you would like to add? And is there anything, any resources you want to put out there where people could get in touch with you if they want to work with you or they want to see what you've been up to or follow you in any way? Uh, well, they can reach me through Switch for Good, which is Alexandra at switchforgood.org. And you can certainly listen to our podcast, Switch for Good, with Dotsy and Kaylin, you used to work with the podcast too, yes. so you know about it, and you've been on the podcast. Yep, so <laughs> great. Yeah, we'll have to check that that episode out. Um, and and then 
I would say, you know, there's some amazing books that are, it depends on, you know, where your passions lie, mm -hmm. but I find that reading just is so inspiring. And, and also you can watch documentaries too, but really, and, and that way, and I, oh, I had one more thought is that if you want, if you can't find your tribe, you haven't found your tribe yet, mm -hmm. it takes time. It takes time to find a tribe because sometimes people are, you know, doing actions that don't gel with you or you don't gel with the people or it's just too difficult, the timing and stuff. It takes time. So be patient when you, when you find an organization, you have to be proactive to get into that organization. You can't mm -hmm. just wait for them to send you a newsletter to tell you about what's going on on Saturday. You need to contact them and say, I can, I bake great cookies. Can I bring cookies to the next thing? Or, yeah. you know, I make signs that you have to be proactive because the, the leaders of an organization don't have time to coddle volunteers and to spend a lot of time bringing people in because they're so hard, so um, busy working on the issue. So as an activist, if you're looking to get involved, you have to actually involve yourself mm. and not wait for someone in an organization to tap you. You, um, you need to wave your hand and go, I can do this. Or, you know, hey, this is an idea I had. What do you think? Yeah, amazing. Such a good reminder. Because sometimes I'm like, why, why am I not doing anything? Oh, because I didn't reach out to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Exactly. I know. I know from experience. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of your amazing work. And I'm going to... Make the world a better place by leaving things better than I found it. You know, whether it be people or the planet or, you know, all kinds of things. Isn't there a quote that says, feel fear and do it anyways? Yeah. 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 So I think for us in significance, we have to do it ourselves. A lot of people are doing things in their life that they're not completely happy with mm -hmm. and they're doing it just because you know it's a norm and they feel like they feel pressured by society Definitely. or they're just you know stuck in this rut mm -hmm. and you know ruts can be comfortable for people and they can be very comfortable comfort is not how you how you grow as a person <laughs>